Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because it'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. Support for this episode comes from Kuat Racks. Kuat makes industry-changing products, including kayak, bike, and truck bed racks for the Ozark Outdoorsman, manufactured with the utmost care to quality, style, and longevity. With their lifetime, no worries, limited warranty, they stand behind their products like no other company. Most importantly, Kuat gives back to the community and makes positive impacts on the environment by partnering with grassroots groups. Through their Future Forest Initiative, they plant one tree for conservation with each rack sold. Kuat is based in Springfield, Missouri, and proudly supports all things Ozarks, including this show. Visit kuat.com for more information. People care about the buffalo. Not only people locally, but people in the state and people nationwide. Our biggest concern with that whole issue was that it came from an economic development perspective, that that was the main goal. If we change the designation, it's going to draw more people in. They're going to spend more money. They're going to stay longer. Well, that's okay, but you need to look first at what the impacts of all those people coming in are going to have on the water quality of the Buffalo River, because that's what's bringing here in the first place. They made a mistake by starting at the top, going to Washington, D.C., and then having it leak out to the local people. That's unfortunate because I think we need to have that conversation about how we're going to deal with increasing numbers of tourists, how we're going to regulate paddlers on the river. And I don't know what the answer is to that, but we need to talk about it. You're listening to the Ozark Podcast. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Ozark Podcast. We have made the drive over to Parthenon, Arkansas. Is that right? Are we in Parthenon? Yeah, we're kind of between Parthenon and Murray. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so we're out. We're boots on the ground. We like to go out and, and meet our people where, where they're at. And we're joined by Gordon Watkins, the president of Buffalo River Watershed Alliance. Gordon, thanks for having us out to your place, and we're excited to, to talk with you. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. Yeah. We've had our first episode with Misty. Um, we talked about some of the cultural and historical background of the Buffalo River. Some of the longstanding heritage mm-hmm. of the Buffalo River, why it's important to people. And then as that relates to you know the recent news about the redesignation proposal, the increase in, in tourism, just kind of local perspectives on that subject. And so... We wanted to talk with you, Gordon, uh, because I know you have a a unique position and you look at a lot of things through the Watershed Alliance from an environmental perspective. And so for this episode, that's really what we wanted to do is talk about the idea of the redesignation in an environmental mindset. So I'll stop talking. I want to let you talk about the Buffalo River Watershed Alliance and just kind of the, the history, the background on it what it is, and then how it got started. So if you want to kind of take us back to the beginning of what the Buffalo River Watershed Alliance is. Unlike some of your other uh, people you've talked to about the redesignation, I, I'm a newcomer here. I've only been here for 50 years. I came here in 1973 as part of the Back to the Land movement, uh, bought 50 acres on the Little Buffalo River, and I've, I've kind of accumulated a few other acres along the way. 
Um, but uh, I was reminded early on that you're you're not you're not a local unless your grandparents are buried here. Yeah. So, so and I have deep respect uh, for the for the multi generational people here. I, I, they've taught me a lot in my time. I, I came here when I was 21 years old, and I, I didn't know much about anything, and and I've learned uh, a lot from from the people who had been here for many generations, and and I and I have deep appreciation and respect for those folks, but. Um, so uh, so I came here, I became an organic farmer. We were one of the oldest certified organic farmers in the state. Uh, grew uh, organic farm for 40 years. And then recently we've gotten into the uh, to the cabin rental business. Okay. Uh, like a lot of other folks in Newton County, there's probably 500 rental cabins in Newton County now that are all uh, attributable to the Buffalo National River. That's what attracts people here and that's what supports that industry. And it's a, it's a huge uh, source of... Uh, uh, a financial benefit to our county and and, and to the state. Yeah, in fact, um, but um, what did you used to grow? I'm, I'm just curious. I know we grew uh, blueberries were kind of our flagship crop. We grew blueberries for 40 years. Um, we grew strawberries, blackberries, raspberries, uh, all sorts of vegetables, uh, beef, pork, chickens, turkeys, a little bit of everything like you have to do in the Ozarks if you want to make a living. It's, right. You have to scratch it out with a little bit of this and that. But blueberries were our main, main crop. We had five acres of blueberries that we shipped all over the country. And, um, and you were one of the first, we were just talking before we started recording, you were one of the first to ship, you were working with Whole Foods back in the day when they just had one store in yeah, Austin. Yeah, we would, we would make two trips a week to Austin with, with blueberries and strawberries when they, that was their only store. And then they opened their second store in Dallas and that, that cut our travel time in, in half, which was nice. But And then by the time we were, we were out of the business, we were shipping all over the country. As they grew, we grew along with them. Uh, so it was kind of a fun fun trip. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. I just thought, you know, that kind of tells how long how long you've been here. You said you're a relative newcomer, but 50 years yeah. is a long time, and, and you've really carved your, your living out here um, in, the, in the Ozarks. Um, and so now you've pivoted now to the the rental industry, and that's kind of what you do. Yeah. So we got kind of tuned into the to the tourism, and I, and I came here from Mississippi in the '60s. I started coming here as a teenager to canoe the Buffalo before it was a national river. Fell in love with the Ozarks. I grew up in the flatland of the, the Mississippi Delta, and the Ozarks were the nearest mountains I could find. And so I fell in love with them in high school, and 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 then when I was able to, as I got into college, I was able to purchase some acreage here. And then moved here uh, in the in the mid '70s uh, with my wife and raised a family here. And uh, and but the river is what really attracted us. We we're on the Little Buffalo River, which is the largest tributary of the Buffalo National River. And of course, you can't buy land on the Buffalo anymore. Right. Uh, so this was the closest thing we could get to the Buffalo. And what was really important to us about the, not only the the uh, aesthetic aspects of the buffalo, but the water quality of the buffalo, the clean, pristine, clear water that supported so much uh, smallmouth bass and goggle eye. And uh, I'm a big fisherman. I love to canoe. Okay. Uh, and so that was, a, that was a big attraction for me. And so I w- became kind of super sensitive to anything that impacted water quality. That's kind of why I got into organic farming, because I, was, I wasn't interested in applying pesticides and fungicides and herbicides to the land. Uh, for fear that it was going to impact the water. And our water here in the Ozarks is, uh, is so fragile. Uh, I get my drinking water from a spring. comes right out of the ground, pipes into my house. Really? And, uh, uh, and so uh, because of our limestone substrata here, our groundwater is really susceptible to contam- contamination. 
So uh, unlike in the Delta where I was raised, where we've got 20 feet of topsoil to filter uh, things that are applied on the surface, here we maybe have six or eight inches of topsoil, and then it hits that limestone, finds those cracks, ends up in a spring, in a cave, in a sinkhole, and comes out on our surfaces through springs and that sort of thing, and, and my drinking water, for example. So the topsoil that you have in the Delta acts as a filter. So a lot of the herbicides and pesticides, they don't filter down into the, the groundwater that we ultimately Correct. There's drink. a whole microbial community in that soil that breaks down those materials. Uh, for the most part, some are much more persistent, unfortunately, but most of them get broken down before they ever reach the water table, uh, which is, can be deep. But here in the Ozarks, it's, it's very shallow. I, I drilled a well. Uh, I have a geothermal heating system at my house, and I drilled three wells to run geothermal pipes down, and we hit a, a river at 20 feet in all three of those wells. Uh, you could shine a mirror down in there, and you could see the water just rushing by, and you could hear it uh, 20 feet down. Wow. And uh, so the, the water's right there, and it's uh, it's susceptible to, to any sort of uh, impacts. And so the Buffalo River Watershed Alliance began in... Uh, uh, 2013, when we discovered that uh, there were a couple of people around here that got wind of a, so to speak, of a hog farm that had been built uh, on the on Big Creek, which is the second largest tributary of the Buffalo River, just over the over the ridge from us, and uh, it was a, a hog operation, the largest of its kind uh, in Newton County for sure, and the only one of its kind ever permitted by the state. That had 6,500 sows and had a had a capacity of about 20,000 pigs at a time, and the 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 real problem with it is that all those pigs are producing waste and they're producing a prodigious amount, and that waste is collected in ponds that are adjacent to the hog houses. These hogs are confined, you know, they're on a graded floor. They never see the soil. Uh, they never get to root and do do the hogs thing. Do what pigs do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I raised I've raised hogs myself. This is like pure commercial, big business. Yeah, hog farm. Right. Yeah, Got absolutely. It. Yeah, and it was a Cargill operation. And then Cargill sold out their pork operation and became a JBS operation, which is JBS is the largest uh, meat uh, processor in the world. They're out of Brazil. Uh, so even, that was, even bigger than Tyson. Absolutely, yeah, bigger than okay. Tyson. Yeah. Uh, and so they they. Uh, this this operation was taking that that hog waste that was in those ponds and hogs produce liquid waste. It's not like poultry houses that are producing litter that's combined with sawdust and wood shavings. It's a pure liquid waste, and so that waste was periodically had to be pumped out of those ponds and spread on fields. And so you're having raw waste that's spread on on these fields with shallow topsoil on top of this karst underlayment that's right adjacent to the to Big Creek, which flows few miles downstream into the Buffalo River at Carver. Mm. So naturally, we were concerned about that. We were particularly concerned because the state, um, when they permitted this facility, uh, did not require any public notice at the local level. There was one notice in the, in the Democrat Gazette, um, which most people around here don't read, um, and that was it. Mm. And so unless you got on the website of the Department of Environmental Quality, you got the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, you didn't know that this was coming down the pike. And it could be just down the road. Right, yeah, and it was very, kept very quiet. Um, and uh, it wasn't until the, the, the permit was issued in, in 2012, uh, the facility was almost completed by the end of 2012, 
before word leaked out that uh, that it was there. And the 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 Park Service, the Buffalo National River, were actually the ones who discovered it and and put the word out because they were and their concern was that they had been previously assured by the state that any permits for confined animal operations um, that they would be notified of any of those that were located in the Buffalo National River watershed because it's important to understand that the the Buffalo National River is it's not like Yellowstone or Glacier or Yosemite, those large uh, parks with you know thousands and millions of acres. It's a 95,000 acres. It's a 135-mile-long park that runs through the floor of the valley, of the Buffalo River Valley. And so it's this narrow blue ribbon that, that winds through the river, and all of that it makes up 11% of the watershed. So the remaining really? uh, percentage of that watershed is either private, most of it's private, some of it is uh, state wildlife management area or national forest, but most of it is private. So, so 90, the, the actual park of the Buffalo National River is 95,000 acres. Mm-hmm. You're saying that's only 11% of the entire watershed? Correct, yeah. So that 89% uh, of, of the watershed feeds the Buffalo River. So all of those tributaries, the Little Buffalo where we are, Big Creek where this hog farm was, and all of the other tributaries for 135 miles are flowing into the Buffalo, and that's the water supply for the Buffalo. So what's going on on those tributaries is impacting the Buffalo National River. So the pristine quality of the Buffalo River is dependent on the quality of those waters that are feeding. Yeah, the Buffalo is just an, an accumulation of everything that has happened up until the point right. that the Buffalo actually starts. Right. Yeah, so... Um, so when we when we heard in 20, early 2013, like in January, we got word uh, that this hog farm was almost completed. The construction was almost completed, and they were getting ready to bring animals in. And uh, a couple of us got concerned about that, and we held a meeting in Jasper. We talked to the quorum court uh, for Newton County about it. Uh, one of the owners of the hog farm happened to sit on the quorum court as one of the justices. Um, Seems like a bit of a conflict of interest. It would seem that way because I, I asked the question at that meeting, how many of you knew, here knew that this hog farm was coming in, not knowing that one of the owners was sitting right there with his back to me. Oh. Uh, and they all kind of shrugged their shoulders and didn't answer. So I, I, was, I was disappointed that our elected officials didn't think more of the local community than to inform them that this was happening. Um, but um, so... Once we found out and we began to spread the word, things snowballed and people became uh, understandably concerned about it. And so we, we formed, soon after that, we formed the Buffalo River Watershed Alliance as a, as a sort of a mechanism to address this threat that we saw coming. And we became a, a 501c3, a nonprofit um, organization. We're all volunteer. And we have a board of directors that I'm the president of. And, uh, and so we began to try to figure out how we could address this 500-pound this, uh, hog in the room, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Um, and uh, and just, to, just to clarify, uh, you know, we lay the blame at the feet of the state. The state dropped the ball on this. The, the people who applied for the permit, these guys over in Mount Gigi, they, they followed the rules. You know, we don't. We don't blame them for, for what they did. Uh, the state should have known better. 
than to, to issue a permit for this, this largest permit of its kind in the state of Arkansas to, to plop it down, uh, you know, a few miles upstream from the Buffalo River. That just should never have happened. Was it in formal writing or language that the park itself did have, I don't know if jurisdiction is the right word, but they had some say into what happened within the watershed, or is it just no, some it was, handshaking, some yeah. like, well, we, you know, we trust each other here. Like, I don't know, what does that look like? Yeah, so the, the, it was not a formal handwritten, I mean, a, a written agreement. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a gentleman's agreement, if you will, uh, by a previous director of the uh, Department of Environmental Quality who assured the, the superintendent of the Buffalo National River that, you know, we'll keep an eye on this. If, mm-hmm. if we get any applications for a permit in the watershed, we'll give you a heads up. Uh, and then uh, institutional memory is not all that great. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> uh, and, and Arkansas or most places probably. And so that, uh, the people who were parties to that, to that gentleman's agreement uh, passed and were mm-hmm. gone. And, and uh, the, the, the new, um, the new bosses didn't, the, the knowledge was not passed down. Uh, so that's, that's probably what happened there. But regardless of that assurance that was given to the, to the park service, the state should have known better than to, than to threaten a, nas- a state sure. icon and a national treasure. Um, uh, so, um, and, and soon at, once the word got out that this permit had been issued without public notice, without sufficient public notice, uh, the legislature turned around and corrected that real quickly. They recognized that that was a that that was a problem that that the local people were not notified and they, and so they changed the rules now. So when a when a new permit is applied for, uh, the neighboring landowners have to be notified. The school superintendents have to be notified. The justices of the peace and the quorum court has to be notified. Uh, it has to be a notice in the local paper, not just the state paper. Mm-hmm. So there's a much more robust notification process now that was lacking when that uh, C&H hog farm was permitted. Uh, so the state recognized that that was a weakness, and they ultimately mm-hmm. recognized that it should never have been issued because they paid it, they spent $6.2 million to buy them out in 2019 wow. to close the thing down. So the state recognized that they had, had made a mistake. Um, and so, um, once that once the Buffalo River Watershed Alliance was was organized, then we began to meet with state agencies. We began to uh, raise holy hell about it to, to make sure that the public knew what was going on. And uh, people care about the buffalo. I mean, mm-hmm. not only people locally, but people in the state and people nationwide. We got twenty thousand comments. Uh, to a reapplication for a permit uh, several years after the this thing was in operation uh, from all over the country. And it was the most, uh, the, Governor Hutchinson at the time said that he had gotten more, um, more comments and more uh, calls and letters about this issue than any other thing during his term in office. Wow. Um, so it was, uh, it was definitely on the radar uh, of, of people around the state and around the country. Um, and that's ultimately what led to to closure. So it closed and that was so that was in 2013 that it all started. When did it actually finalize? In 2019. In June of 2019 the governor announced that that they had reached an agreement. There'd been some uh, pretty intense negotiations I think. Uh, Farm Bureau was involved with it uh, uh, and the owners obviously were involved in it Uh, but there was uh, some intense negotiations that happened for several months prior to the announcement that it was that it was closing, and uh, and the state 
ponied up six point two million to close it down uh, to the owners. Wow, um, that's a, a long time for for that to be. So was it operating all that time from twenty thirteen yeah. to twenty nineteen? Yeah, the animals arrived in uh, spring of twenty thirteen, and they began production immediately. And it was a it was a farrowing operation where they bred sows and uh, produced piglets. And then once the piglets were weaned, they shipped them out to to grow out operations. So there was a it was a cycle, continuous cycle. Pigs can produce three litters a year, uh, so they were uh, continually um, producing pigs and shipping them out. And producing waste was mm-hmm. the most problem. And, and some um, some calculations I saw said that, that that one operation produces as much waste as the city of Harrison. Wow! And the difference is the city of Harrison processes its waste. Mm. This facility did not process Yeah, they're not putting it in ponds. Right. Yeah. Yeah, this waste was being spread on fields in a raw form, uh, you know, full of E. coli and, and, and nutrients was, the, what was a big concern for us. And so we began, um, there was a, uh, we involved some of the people from the University of Arkansas, uh, a hydrogeologist um, and named Van Brahana, uh, who was an emeritus professor at the time. He had retired uh, but he had lots of experience doing um, dye trace studies in karst environments. And so uh, he put together a team, uh, came to the Mount Judy area, uh, injected dye in a well that was in the middle of the spreading fields where the sog waste was being applied, and then um, traced it uh, in all of the surrounding streams and the Buffalo River, which was six miles downstream, and, uh, and created a map an underground map of the karst pathways wow. that that dye followed. And it came up, uh, <laughs> he had a, a presentation called uh, uh, Can Water Flow Uphill? And in fact, the water that was injected in that well came up upstream in a, an adjacent stream, not in that watershed, but in another watershed. So it had traveled underground, underneath a ridge, come up in another uh, stream upstream from where it was injected because of the karst pathways that don't follow the topography of the ground. Wow. And so, but the, the most telling part of that study was that it came up in the Buffalo River. Right. There were, there were springs in the Buffalo River um, where they had, uh, had detection packets that detected that dye, and it came up very quickly. So there was a, it was a rapid pathway yeah. uh, as well as a distant pathway. Uh, and that that was a that was a real obvious des, uh, uh, demonstration of of how water flows in karst environments, um, and that was a very telling uh, very telling experiment that he did. And then we conducted, and we still have ongoing water sampling program that we collect water samples on a monthly basis uh, from around the where the hog farm was located, those fields. One of the problems with hog waste is that it contains a high uh, amount of phosphorus. Okay. Phosphorus is a nutrient that uh, leads to algae blooms when it, when it gets in the water. Algae blooms tie up oxygen when they die, and that depletes the oxygen in the water, and fish die, invertebrates die, the food, whole food chain gets impacted. But the, the, one of the long-term problems with phosphorus is it's, it binds to the soil. And so not even if you have a rainfall, some of it's going to run off into the streams, but a lot of it's going to get tied up in the soil, and then it gets released over time. And so you have the slow leaching of phosphorus into the streams, um, 
or it can be rapid release if, it, if there's stream bank erosion, for example. Right. That erosion will uh, dump uh, large amounts of phosphorus into the streams. And so you've got a, a long-term problem, even if you stop like, like they did. That's why we're continuing to, to sample there uh, to measure uh, how much impact that, that place is going to have over time. So as someone who's, who's listening who maybe they're a, a smallmouth angler or they just... They like swimming in creeks or, you know, catching crawdads, whatever it is. Um, and you, as, as someone who, like us, we like fishing and mm-hmm. we like um, chasing smallmouth. What what does that mean when you have phosphorus and you have these, um, you know, raw waste and chemicals leaching into the watershed? What does that mean for the fish and the anglers and people who enjoy the, the resource? Well, the, the phosphorus is part of the problem. And like I said, it leads to algae blooms. And then when that algae dies, it, it ties up oxygen that's going to impact the food supply for those smallmouth bass and those mm-hmm. goggle eye. Um, and, and so they're, they're going to move. If, if, it, if they don't outright die, they're going to move uh, to some other downstream location. Were there any studies on the, the impact in the years that the hog farm was running? Were there any studies on like what actually was the impact and... and- you know, how were fish populations impacted or anything like that? Yeah, there was a, the, the state uh, Department of Environmental Quality has an ongoing water sampling program all over the state. Uh, every two years they have to, uh, the EPA requires that they uh, do a, uh, an analysis of every stream in the state and that they quantify the condition of that stream. And Big Creek, where this hog farm is located, and Downstream at the at the Buffalo River, upstream and downstream of the confluence of Big Creek with the Buffalo River, were designated as impaired streams because of low oxygen and uh, and turbidity also. Um, but uh, so that's a that's a measure that's a you know very specific measurement that w- was taken that uh, requires a lot of data to reach that designation because no, nobody wants that. Right. Nobody wants to. To hear that the Buffalo River is impaired, right, uh, or or any of its tributaries are impaired. So that was a that was a pretty big deal, and some of that was due to our data collection that we did. But then the USGS was collecting data, the University of Arkansas was collecting data, the state was collecting data. So they were all watching this this operation very closely. Once once it exploded, and you know the people were so concerned, there was a lot of scrutiny on that operation, and there was no, you know, one of the tricky things about water sampling. Um, is that it's hard to it's hard to trace an impact back to its source. Mm. So you can't. Uh, there are ways to do it. There are genetic testing that you can do for on E. coli, for example, where you can tell what what species that E. coli came from. Um, <coughs> but um, we didn't have the have the wherewithal to conduct those kind of experiments, and it was kind of in the early stages at that time. So. Uh, the, the state never said, you know, that this stream is impaired because of this hog farm. But that was the obvious source of it. Gotcha. In, our, in our mind, it was, at yeah. least. And I think in the state's mind, otherwise they wouldn't have closed it down. Um, so it was having an impact, and I think it will continue to have an impact uh, as time goes on. Um, but luckily, we, we closed it down before it had a catastrophic impact. Yeah, I've based on some of y'all's studies that you're continuing to do and the people you're talking with, how long do you think you know a five or six year hog operation will continue to impact the quality of the Buffalo River and its watersheds? I've heard twenty years. 
Okay, about, no, about 20 years for the soil to regenerate. That that phosphorus can t- continue to be released for up to 20 years is one, one study I've seen out of the that's University crazy. of Arkansas. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's like a battery, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's been charged up by this phosphorus and it's going to now discharge over long periods of time. You could see why people who, <laughs> they know the ecological impact of something as big as a, what do you say, 20,000 plus yeah. hog farm? Yeah. People who know their stuff, the people who are backed by science, they look at that and it's, you know, you're saying we can't trace this specific strain of E. coli here, but like Occam's razor, it's yeah. what it is. Like um, that's yeah. what that's it, it all leads to, all those roads lead to Rome, like yeah. it's leading back. Um, you could see why it just makes sense. You'd be so up in arms and frustrated about, hey, this may be, we're trying to stop it. Even if it's only a five-year operation, we're looking at 20 years worth of impact. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the part of conservation that took me a long time to understand and I think takes a lot of people a, a pretty long time to wrap their head around of there's very few immediate fixes that bring anything back to the state that we'd like them to be or their natural state. Um, but there's all there's also a lot of pressures that you could make one or two wrong steps on and actually impact something for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Umarex just dropped their brand new groundbreaking rifle, the Complete NCR. Unlike other air rifles that require air compressors, hand pumps, or other bulky external tanks, the Complete saves you time and money with the introduction of a pre-charged, ready-to-use nitrogen cartridge. The Nitro Air cartridges deliver up to 45 high-velocity shots without having to recharge, making it the perfect air gun to take to the woods. I'm telling y'all, this is a game changer in the air gun world. Check out all the specs at umarexusa.com and use our discount code OZARKAIR for 12% off your order. What are some of the what are some of the parallels in the hog farm story and then the Buffalo River potential redesignation that you're witnessing as a local, that you're hearing around the area, that you're uh, seeing kind of how, how people are going about it. What are some of the parallels in the two of those? Where, where are they similar? Where do they differ? Just kind of what's your take on the whole Buffalo River redesignation? Yeah, so, you know, as I said, the Buffalo River Watershed Alliance, our main focus is water quality. Mm-hmm. And so what what concerned us the most, I think, about the redesignation once we, once we heard about it, and I heard about it from somebody who got the phone survey, who called me up and said, you know, what's this all about? You know, is, you know, are you guys conducting this survey? Because it was all kind of mysterious really? at the time. What, what was, I'm curious how that conversation went. Was it like, hey, I got this call. They asked me a bunch of questions. Is it you? They, they didn't know who it was from. Right. Yeah, they didn't know who it was from. Um, and they were confusing questions. Uh, you know, we've all, you know, been a part of these phone surveys, I'm sure. Uh, and usually they're pretty straightforward questions. Uh, these were not. These were kind of complex, convoluted. You know, what what would you think about the Buffalo Na- National River being designated as a national park? Well, I thought it was a national park was the most common response. Mm. You know, people didn't understand that distinction um, and and what it meant, you know, to, to change that designation, what that would mean. Was there context provided around some of the questions? Not much, okay. no, from what I heard. And, I, and I've actually seen the survey itself, and it, it, was, it was pretty... Um, uh, there was not much uh, back and forth with the with the survey conductor. I don't think, and that was probably uh, intentional. I think they want to get uh, an answer from people that 
you know, that they're not lead, they don't want to lead people into right, an answer. Right, trying to make it um, unbiased. Although I've heard that heard some people call it a push poll that they were, you know, that they were looking for the answers that they wanted to hear. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that's the case or not. But, but, but our biggest concern with with that whole um, issue was that that the, it it came from an economic development. Uh, perspective that that was the main goal that that uh, and that was the stated goal that you know we think this would be a great economic development project if we change the designation it's going to draw more people in they're going to spend more money they're going to stay longer <coughs> and our concern was that well that's okay but you need to you need to look first at what the impacts of all of those people coming in are going to have on the water quality of the Buffalo River because that's what's bringing here in the first place that's what's attracting people. And if you if you kill the goose that laid the golden egg, then <laughs> you haven't accomplished very much in right. the, for the long run. Uh, so that was that was our big concern. And you know, I talked to the runway group myself. Uh, I think their intentions were good. I think they were misguided in how they approached it. I think you know, like we started out saying, uh, you know, the, the, the tourism is going to increase. It's, we're seeing it every year. There's there's more people for the most part, <coughs> and. So um, uh, something something needs to be done to address that. Mm-hmm. Something proactive needs to be done to address that. But I think it needs to start by looking at, at how to protect the river itself, uh, not how to make more money off of the river, but right. how to protect the river. Um, and that was lacking in this in this case, at least on the front end. Now, it may have been uh, their plan to address that down the road. I don't know, but, um, but I think that... Uh, that that should have been addressed on the front end. And, and most of all, I think they made a mistake by starting at the top, going to Washington, D.C., talking to the congressmen, and then uh, and then having it leak out to the local people. That uh, <laughs> that did not go over well. No, it didn't. Um, and I, I think if they had if they had, uh, had thought about that a little bit more, if they had started at the local level and had some local meetings with people, uh, the outcome would have been a whole lot different, and yeah. that's that's unfortunate because I think, I think that conver- we need to have that conversation. We need to talk about, you know, how we're going to uh, deal with with increasing numbers of tourists. How we're going to, um, how we're going to regulate paddlers on the river. You know, in this in the spring and the early summer, uh, on the weekend, uh, I I don't go on the weekends anymore. I mean, it's just this is the time of year to go paddling on the buffalo if you want to have yeah. some solitude. Yeah, um, get away from the crowds. Yeah, if you go in the, on a busy weekend, you're going to wait in line to shoot the rapids, and wait in line to get your boat in the water. I mean, it's it's getting getting pretty crazy, and I think the park service recognizes that. Um, and I don't know I don't know what the answer is to that, but we need to talk about it. We yeah. need to come up with some ideas. Um, and if we don't, if we you know, so many people say, well, we just we want them just to leave us alone. Just leave us alone and let it be. You know, we want it to stay just like it is. Well, <clears throat> that's good to say, but that's not reality. That's not going to happen. Change is a part of nature. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's um, it's it's good to talk about. And it's kind of where, like, as we've talked about how we want to cover the the topic is, you know, what, what's been done is done. And I think Runway gets a lot of flack for the survey and all that. But if we take a step back and we just, like, hey, let's actually talk about the idea Let's talk about, um, you know, tourism general, even if you remove the, the redesignation as a national park, like let's just talk about the idea of more people being here. What does that mean? What should we do to get ahead of that? Be proactive. Cause like you said, if you have, if you look at it from different perspectives, so if, if you look at it from 
people's perspective of like recreation and, you know, we want as many people to value it and spend time on it and use the resource to build advocacy and people who love the Buffalo, you know, that's, that's one perspective. But then if you don't protect the river and have the river's best interest at heart, then, and the river goes to, you know, disrepair, it's impaired. And now you don't have the fish, you don't have the wildlife. You lose a lot of the value that was there originally that brought the people to begin with. So you can't do one really without the other. In a perfect world, if you were only focused on the river, you would probably say no people at all. Like mm. Nobody can be on there because that leads to trash and other things like that. Mm. But that's not where we're at, and I don't think that's right. what anybody wants. So we have to focus on how do we do this in a balanced way to where we protect the river, but people can still enjoy it. And so for you, I'm curious now, if we talk about Okay, tourism's coming. There's more and more people. It's already here, right? Like tourism is already here. Mm-hmm. What is the impact on the river that we see from even now people spending their their weekends and their summers and, you know, their time here in the Buffalo River watershed and actually on the water? Mhm. Yeah, I think um uh, the the biggest impact, uh, the most obvious impact at least is congestion. I mean, you just see so many the crowds of people, and I'm particularly here on the Upper Buffalo. Um, probably not so much on the Lower Buffalo, and, and less uh, in the Mid Buffalo. But the Upper Buffalo um, is that an access thing? It's just an ac- a lot less day float options that kind of deal. Yeah, I think that's part of it, um, and it's the most iconic part of the river. I mean, the big bluffs, the fast rapids. The upper uh, buffalo is yeah the upper buffalo like right. from from Ponca to to uh, to Pruitt mm-hmm. that that part and and down to Hasty I guess is the the bottom end of the upper buffalo uh, but uh, and and the the access points are are tight there's not much room they're hard to get to you know you get down to Kyle's or Steel Creek you've got some steep roads to go down um, and parking can be a problem when you get down there. Um, so congestion's a problem, and I'm not sure how they're going to address that. It's not like, uh, you know, those big parks I mentioned, like Yellowstone or, or Yosemite, where they've, you know, they got a discrete boundary and they can control access points uh, pretty easily. you got a 135-mile river with state highways crossing it and all these county roads crossing it. Um, you know, how do you, how do you manage, how do you limit access when you've got that many access points? And when you say congestion's a problem, environmentally, like, what does congestion do that causes a problem? Other than, like, well, I'm tired of standing in line and this person's too close to me. Like, what does it actually do on the yeah, landscape? Well, I think it, you know, there's there's more trash, there's more human waste, uh, uh, and there's, there's, you know, there's not there's not many outhouses along the, <laughs> along the river, right? Um, so you know that's that's a problem, uh, and uh, you know the fuel consumption that it takes all those cars parking and you know running their engines and uh, you know that that's a problem, um, and it puts a it puts a big burden on the local community as well. I mean, there, there's benefits for sure. Uh, you know, those people are spending money. Uh, you know, they're renting cabins like ours or they're, you know, eating in the local restaurants, buying gas. So they're spending money in the community, and that's a good thing. Um, this this area does not have many uh, many opportunities for, for generating income, and, and tourism is a, is a booming one right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if it's managed properly, that'll be a good thing. Um, but, uh, you know, there's most of the places like ours, we're on a septic system. If those septic systems are faulty, they're not 
not working properly. There's going to be impacts on the groundwater from that, from all of the uh, added tourists that are visiting the area. Um, so that's a that's an issue. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a thorny problem. I'm not sure what the what the answer is going to be to that, but mm-hmm. we need to talk about it. Yeah, know, with the permits or 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 an answer. But besides that, you know, we talked about the the fact that the buffalo is only 11% of the watershed. So we're also seeing lots of development outside the boundaries of the Buffalo River. Um, Johnny Morris with Bass Pro Shops, you know, recently bought the old dog patch property and is acquiring lots more properties around it. Um, that's going to attract um, numbers of people into the to Newton County there. Uh, the Walton family recently purchased Horseshoe Canyon, which is a is a big uh, tourist draw for rock climbers and horseback riding and zip lines, uh, that sort of thing. Um, Buffalo Outdoor Center in Ponca is has uh, is, is gotten pretty heavily developed. Uh, there's an airstrip there, um, so it's a uh, there's a lots there's going to be lots more development. Uh, surrounding the watershed, and if that's not done properly, that's going to have a even greater impact, I think, than the than the tourists that are actually utilizing the river, um, because those are, like I said, they're on the tributaries and they're going to feed the buffalo, and if they're not uh, not managed carefully, they're going to have an impact on the river quality, on the yeah. water quality of the river. Yeah, in your mind, kind of going back to um, what I was saying about balancing the the environmental interests and people's recreational interests how do you think that um how how should people think about that to to what extent can we enjoy the river and you know use it and encourage people to use it um while also protecting it like how how do you mix out those two things because like i said if if all you really cared about was water quality you would basically say like no that's it like it's closed nobody's on it and we're just going to let it be what it is and try not to impact it well i think it it requires monitoring for one thing and i, th- I think an interesting uh, fact is that the, the buffalo national river has been conducting water mon- monitoring uh, pretty intensive monitoring since 1985 and they've also been monitoring tourism visitation to the river um and they have not they have not correlated any changes in the river with the numbers of visitors so in other words they've not they've not seen any proof that increased visitation is impacting the water quality of the river okay. where they're seeing the impacts coming from and they are seeing impacts those impacts are coming from the tributaries so what's happening upstream on the little buffalo or big creek or any of the other tributaries is what's having the largest impact on water quality. And that's, that's in terms of nutrients, whether it's nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, or it's bacteria like E. coli. Uh, that's where those impacts are coming from. Um, and so I think uh, there's, there's an interesting project underway now that was an outgrowth of the, of the hog farm operation. And that was that uh, when Governor Hutchinson announced that he was that the state was going to buy out that operation. They also uh, imposed a conservation easement on that property. Uh, so the, the, the original owners still own that property, but they're constrained by what they can do on that property. They can't open another hog farm, for example. Mm-hmm. So there, there are some restrictions on that particular property. But 
the governor also uh, created uh, what's now called the Buffalo River Conservation Committee. And that's an organization that's made up of uh, the, the heads of several state agencies, Department of Ag, Environmental Quality, Department of Health, and Department of Tourism. Uh, and they meet on a quarterly basis and they talk about uh, things that could be done in the watershed to protect the Buffalo River. Uh, and the governor kicked it off with a million dollar um, uh, of, of million dollars of funding, and then the Nature Conservancy also kicked in a million dollars of funding. And we're hoping that that, that that funding is going to be renewed in this coming fiscal session of the legislature coming up in the first of the year. Um, and they have, um, they have funded projects like um, uh, unpaved roads, all of our dirt roads in Newton County and, and Searcy County, those are the two biggest counties in the Buffalo River watershed, um, have, have uh, hundreds of miles of unpaved roads. Those roads, uh, depending on how they're maintained, they contribute a huge amount of sediment to the river. Right. <clears throat> and that sediment, um, it, it, uh, it fills in the river, it, it causes turbidity in the river, which impedes uh, the growth of invertebrates, which are food supply for the larger uh, fish. Um, and so th they're addressing that. For example, they're paving a mile and a half of Cave Mountain Road, which leads up to Hawksville Crag. Um, that's one of the most heavily used roads in the watershed because people want to go see Hawksville Crag. Sure. Um, and that's a, if you've been on that road, the first part of it coming up from Boxley is, is steep and twisty and it's always washing out. And so they're going to pave that to reduce that erosion uh, into the river. Uh, and they've done the same. They've not paved other roads, but they've, um, they've improved other roads in the watershed to reduce uh, erosion and sedimentation. Um, there's uh, also a, pro uh, a program to improve the wastewater treatment plants in the watershed. There's a lot of money put into the Jasper sewer treatment uh, system. Also in the... Um, the Marble Falls sewer treatment system at Dogpatch that, um, that's being uh, expanded now. So the state's put a lot of money into improving those. The Marble Falls sewer plant was a, um, was a huge problem because it got damaged in an ice storm a number of years ago and was discharging untreated waste into Mill Creek, which feeds into the, little, into the Buffalo mm -hmm. uh, right below Hasty, or right above Hasty. Um, and... Uh, so they're doing that. They're also encouraging uh, landowners to do stream bank stabilization projects to reduce erosion uh, from the stream banks. I've, I've participated in that. Um, they're uh, uh, trying to trap feral hogs, which are a real problem in the watershed and all over the state, I guess. Um, and we've, we've trapped hogs here. Um, so they're, doing, they're trying to involve stakeholders, local uh, members of the community to identify issues that need to be addressed, and then they're trying to bring in the funds to, to deal with those. So that's a, that's a great program, and that's a direct outgrowth of that hog farm. So that was a positive uh, result of, of that, if you, could, if you could, could say anything was positive about it. <laughs> it's crazy thinking that even the dirt roads around here affect the river. I know everything affects the river. Everything affects everything. That's kind of how nature works, but would never have thought that you could slowly fill in a river by not having paved roads and you're going to have half of the community go, you have to pave the roads because we're mm -hmm. saving the river and the other half go, well, that's what makes this place amazing because yeah. it's not all paved and, <laughs> right. and all of that. And I wanted to circle back on something before we talk a little bit about Robert's Gap, but environmentally, 
this clicked as you were sharing this, and I'd never thought about this before. Um, and I'm probably oversimplifying it, so I just want to. You can agree yes or no, and then and then go from there a little bit. But we're so focused on such a tiny portion of the Buffalo River, and my mind immediately goes to, so what's the impact of tourism? Well, a ton of canoes, a ton of cars, a ton of whatever, and like in that one section, that's a problem. And you're saying there's actually pretty good studies saying that doesn't have a crazy effect on the health of the river as a whole. We actually need to expand our view away from the most concentrated and condensed tourist areas to the broader Buffalo as a whole and recognize tourism, especially in the watersheds as people buy land that's not in the park because you can't buy land in the park. And they, you know, they develop couple thousand acres over here for this massive, uh, you know, we have 14 miles of stream and it's cabin after cabin after cabin and whatever. Like Mm -hmm. those are the things that when you're saying environmentally tourism is impacting, that's actually what's impacting the Buffalo. It's not just the cars coming through Boxley. Am I Am I pretty much on it there? I think that's I think that's essentially true. Yeah, that, that that's what the data shows. At okay. least is that the, the the number of tourists don't really impact the water quality of the Buffalo mm-hmm. that much, but they, they there are other impacts besides sure, water they quality. The landscape. And, yeah, um, yeah, but uh, as far as water water quality is concerned, uh, yeah, I think you know what they've shown is that it's it's the water flowing into the Buffalo mm-hmm. that's the bigger impact. Yeah, I don't think I I hadn't realized that's what. That's what people who know their stuff are talking about when they're talking about increased tourism potentially being a problem. Where I just I read that and I think, yeah, man, it's going to be terrible when Boxley Valley is just condensed with cars as it is when I come in the summer. Mm-hmm. Like that's no fun. But recognizing there's so much more at play potentially yeah. um, for the health of the Buffalo as a whole as more and more land in the area gets developed and more people from big corporations just to private landowners want want a piece of it because it's a it's an amazing part of the state um yeah and and particularly as people see the monetary benefits mm-hmm. of owning land here uh which we're beginning to see now with with these big uh, deep pocket uh folks coming in and buying up large acreages and and you know they're they see that what's coming and and they're going to feed that. I think they're going to you know try to draw that in. And that's what that that whole runway project was about was how to how can we attract more people in, and how can we get them to stay longer, um, which uh, is great from a, a economic uh, development standpoint, but not so great from an environmental standpoint. Mm-hmm. If that's your if that's your primary goal, mm-hmm. you got to you got to balance those two, and you got to you got to. I think the priority has to be preserving you know, the attraction in the first place. And that attraction is the Buffalo River. Yeah. And there's definitely a way to do it sustainably and healthily. Yeah. I think there is. And it's, it's just a lot more of conversations have to happen. Yeah. And it's got to be a gradual process. I don't I don't think, uh, I talked to the superintendent of the New River Gorge uh, National Park, which was, was kind of, uh, runway pointed to that as the model for what they wanted to do here, and it was a it was the second national river, and then they converted it to a to a national park and preserve, right? Uh, like what they were propose, proposing here, and the superintendent said that, you know, on balance it was probably a good thing, but that it was a it was a real struggle for the local community because all of a sudden they were they were they were flooded with with tourists who came in and they weren't prepared for it. If there had been some prep, some uh, planning before that. They, they could have handled it a lot better, in his opinion. So uh, I think that's kind of where we're at, that we need to st- take a step back, say, how can we plan for these coming tourists and, uh, and, and manage that uh, so that we don't have uh, negative impacts from it? 
Yeah. I'm curious, just last question on this before we move on, because I know we want to talk about the Robert's Gap project um, and we'll go there and what's going on with that. Um, but last question on this, we have heard and we've heard, um, we interviewed Mike Mills uh, last year and, and he, at the end of the episode we did with him, he had predicted at some point in the future, um, there may be a, a need for permitting on, on the river um, and that, that that may come one day. I'm curious in places like New River Gorge, have they have they implemented any type of permitting to limit the access or how many people are on the water impacting the area of the watershed? And and do you think something like that is is likely to happen here at some point in the future? I don't I don't know that New River Gorge is, has a permitting program. I don't believe they do. Uh, keep in mind that it's a much smaller park. The 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 national park itself is only 7,500 acres. Uh, the preserve is 60,000 acres, I believe. Um, so it's a it's a smaller national park than the Buffalo National River is, and it's a shorter uh, section of river that's that's within the park, and it's a it's a much more rugged and steep. It's mostly a rafting river. So I think the concessioners control that, and that was the case here on the Buffalo for years. The concessioners pretty well managed the, the the visitation because everybody was renting canoes. Right. Once you could go to Walmart and buy a hundred dollar kayak, mm-hmm. everything changed. Everybody yeah. started, you know, doing their own shuttles, bringing their own boats. Because it used to be, however, the only number of people that could be on the river was how many canoes the outfitters had. Right. Yeah, they were regulated. They could only have so many canoes, and they were limited to a certain section of the river that they could put people on. Uh, so that was that was the the regulation tool that they were using and that's that's gone now um but i i think uh like i mentioned it's a it's difficult to to permit on the buffalo because there's so many access points and so there the the park service and this is true across the country every every national park is underfunded you know they they can't you know there's so much deferred maintenance that they that they haven't been able to get to they're understaffed imagine putting you know a, a a ranger at every access point on the Buffalo River, 135 miles of river, yeah. and and you know checking everybody's permit when they got on the river, it just it doesn't happen. I went up and, and floated the Boundary Waters the National Park up in Minnesota a few years ago, and we had to get our permit a year ahead of time. And they regulated that you know you can only have you know a certain number of people in your party. You can only you had to designate where you were going to camp and how long you were going to be there and where you were going to go. It was very tightly controlled. As a result, we didn't see a soul for two weeks in the Boundary Waters. It was it was a beautiful experience, but that's not the Buffalo. That's there's no way that they can. I don't think that there's going to be some other mechanism that they're going to have to use, and, and maybe new technologies. You know, maybe you can put a, some sort of tag on everybody's boat that <laughs> a tracking regular, beacon. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that'll work, but but they're going to have to they're going to have to deal with it somehow. Yeah. I think, and, and uh, it's it's going to require some discussion. You got to talk about it, and if people aren't willing to discuss it, then it's going to be hard to. You're going to be a victim of the of the coming surge, and, and mm. rather, instead of being in, in control of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, let's let's um, change topics a little bit here. So, I know a little bit more. Um, I guess relevant's not the word because they're both very relevant and they're both very timely. Um, but the Roberts Gap project that that BRWA is involved with right now um, and the U.S. Forest Service set this up for me. I could try to explain it, but I know I'm not going to explain it as well as you. What is what is going on with this project, and how is Buffalo River Watershed Alliance um, getting involved? So. 
most people probably don't know that the Buffalo River doesn't take up the entire watershed. It doesn't, uh, the park doesn't start at the beginning of the Buffalo River. There's a, the headwaters of the Buffalo River are outside of the park boundaries. And they, they, it originates in an area that's known as Roberts Gap. That's the, the ultimate headwaters. And people know Hawksbill Crag or Whitaker Point is the more official name for it. Um, that's one of the most iconic spots in Arkansas. You see it spread all over all of our tourism literature. Hawksbill Crag is in Roberts Gap. So if people know that, they know where Roberts Gap is. But not only is it the headwaters of the Buffalo River, it's also the headwaters of the Kings River, the White River, War Eagle Creek, and the Mulberry River. So five of, of the most iconic streams in Arkansas. I was going to say, those are the heavy hitters. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah that's, the ones. that's the ones. They all start right there, and it's called the headwaters for a good reason. That's, that's where they all originate. How, how big is this area where they all originate? Well, the... The, uh, the Roberts Gap area, as it's defined by the Forest Service, is 40,000 acres. So it's, um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a large area, um, and, it's, uh, and it's slated for uh, a large uh, management project that involves uh, logging, road construction, fire line building, prescribed burning, herbicide applications. Um, all of that's uh, planned for this area in the immediate headwaters of the Buffalo River. Uh, if people have been to Dixon uh, Ford, which people float, float the uh, hailstone, what they call the hailstone, which is the headwaters of the Buffalo, the upper part of the Buffalo, not the ultimate headwaters, which are in Roberts Gap, but hailstone is about the furthest upstream that you can actually float, and you can only float it during high water periods. But that's the boundary of the Park Service land and the Roberts Gap Forest Service land. It's right there. Um, so um, we started, we, we heard about a, this proposal back in 2017 when we were pretty deeply involved in the hog farm issue and we, we tried to keep up with it as best we could and we, we um, participated in, in public comments with the Forest Service about their proposal. And then um, as it progressed uh, through the planning process uh, and the public comment process, uh, we... Um, we were concerned that our concerns were not being met by the by the uh, Forest Service. The public comment process is a, is a means where they engage with the with the general public to get feedback on what their proposals are, and they did modify their proposals somewhat. They reduced the amount of herbicides they were applying. They changed some of their logging um, practices, but in our opinion, they didn't do enough, and so ultimately, we filed a lawsuit uh, to to asking them to go back and do a more thorough environmental assessment. But one of the reasons for that is that during the, from the time that the public comment period closed, before the Forest Service issued their final decision, they discovered smack dab in the middle of the Roberts Gap project, a maternal colony of Indiana bats. And Indiana bats are an endangered species. And they're well known to be in that area. They've, they hibernate in, in, uh, in the Cave Mountain Cave. Uh, they're, they're known to be in that area. But it's always been thought that when they have their young, that they migrate mostly to Missouri to have their, have their young. And then when their young are able to, to fly, they come back to the, to the Ozarks. And this was the very first discovery of a maternal colony of Indiana bats in the Ozarks was found in Roberts Gap. 
right in the middle of their decision process. And this was was within the last like three to five years. Yeah, yeah, That's and amazing. they and they had been tracking these. They apparently they had known they had, they had found a a female bat that was lactating, and so they were, had a pretty good idea that there must be a maternal colony there. But it took them three years to actually identify the roost for them. And they found a tree in the middle of Robert's Gap that was a roost tree for this maternal colony. Wow, and, that is so cool. How did so, they even find that? So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were tracking them with airplanes. Um, to, to I lo- want that to job. Lo- yeah. cool job. Whatever job that is, I want it. <laughs> well, I have a friend who actually located the tree. He actually found it for him. Man. Um, so, uh, but that was a significant discovery. And what they should have done uh, before proceeding with their final decision was that they should have reopened it for public comment about how we're going to how are we going to protect this maternal colony as, as important as it is. Instead, they they wrote a couple of paragraphs into the end of the decision notice that said, "Well, we're going to set back a quarter mile from that tree uh, for any of our activities burning. You know, how do you set back you know, a quarter mile from a burn? <laughs> how do you keep smoke a quarter mile away?" Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so that was their answer. And so that was that was one of the driving reasons for our lawsuit was when they when they refused to to really address you know protection of that bat colony um, that was uh, that kind of pushed us into to a lawsuit and so we hired a public service law firm out of Oregon who's done a lot of work with the Forest Service over the years um, uh, to represent us and we've got a, a lawsuit underway now that uh, we're hoping will be wrapped up early next year um, they're, they're filing their final briefs and um, if the judge uh, finds everything complete then we should have a decision in early 2024 about that but we're essentially asking them to step back take a closer look uh, do a better environmental assessment a supplemental assessment is what the technical term is for it um, to address the, the bat uh, issue and also the impacts on the Buffalo River because they're um, we asked that they do water monitoring. Uh, they had not, they had not included any baseline water monitoring before this project started, which is kind of a, a pretty significant oversight. I think that's kind of a common practice. Being to head water, yeah, right? yeah. That they should have gone in there and, and taken water samples before this project ever began, and then take water samples throughout the project's duration. Uh, that's the baseline to kind of understand current state right. before the project, correct? And then monitor after correct. to see how it's changed. Yeah, and so. They they kind of grudgingly agreed to do that based on public comments that were given, and so they they delayed the project for a year. They went in there and they've collected their those baseline samples now, um, and then they'll come back afterwards. But our concern was with the uh, herbicides uh, in particular, but also the one of the the real problems. There's over 70 miles of road construction f- to get logs out, logging roads that are going to be either uh, reopened or rebuilt uh, to access that area, and then another 20 miles of uh, fire line that's going to be dozed around. There's a lot of private inholders in Roberts Gap, and so they'll be building fire lines to protect those uh, that private property and control the burns. Um, well, those roads and those fire lines are they're a permanent scar on the land. They divert uh, water flow paths. They create erosion. Um, and they're they're there forever. If you've ever walked through the woods here, you you come across these old logging roads that mm-hmm. are hundred years old. Yeah, you see them. Um, and so they're 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 a permanent. They become a permanent part of the landscape that we don't think is appropriate. And this is keep in mind this also is where the Upper Buffalo Wilderness is located. 
they're not going to be doing anything. They're prohibited by law from from doing any of these uh, activities in the in the wilderness area. But uh, but they're going right up right up to the boundary of it. So they're they're burning and they're logging. It all happened right there. Um, so it's a it's a special it's a special place. Uh, and it deserves a little more attention than they've given it. We think. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious. You know, being being an outdoorsman, and actually, a lot of the people that we've we've talked with and interviewed on our podcast talk about a lot of the benefits of prescribed burning, mm-hmm. logging, timber stand improvement. Um, you know, in the cases when you have like um, invasive non-native plants um, like Cerisa lespedisa, some of these these plants that, um, you know, don't belong here, they're, they're not from here, and the application of herbicide and how effective it is in removing some of those so that you can have better habitat for wildlife. Turkeys, quail, deer, you have more forage on the ground, you open up the canopy, now there's more food and, and cover for, for wildlife. Um, I'm, I'm curious, and, and you as an outdoorsman, you, you've mentioned you fish, and I don't know if you hunt, but when you think about the the benefits of doing some of these things like the forest service is talking about of logging and, and prescribed burning um, I'm, I'm curious if, if that's, if your position as BRWA is we're anti burning, we're anti logging or if what your ultimate goal would be to, you know, we don't want any of this to happen in this area or if it's more like a, a little bit more of a gray area of like, it's not that we're anti it; it's something else. Yeah, it's not. It's not black and white for us. It's, okay. it's not that we're opposed to timber management or that we're pers- opposed to prescribed burning, for that matter. We think it's the scale and the scope and the location that it's being done. Um, I think there are benefits to be gained from from prescribed burning, uh, but to do it eleven thousand acres at a time and to do it year after year on that same eleven thousand acres, we think mm. is excessive. Uh, particularly given the location and the presence of endangered species, and, and uh, is that the plan? Is ever you know each year we're going to burn this eleven thousand acres? Is that yeah? What's I been don't proposed know. If, I don't or? know that every year, but they will be sequentially burned. Yeah, that that that's the plan is that you don't just burn it once; it gets burned you know repeatedly okay. until they achieve the their management goal, which is an oak savanna which I, I don't think they've ever succeeded in creating an oak savanna. Mm. And that um, and that's essentially the plan, as I understand it, the plan for the entire Ozark St. Francis Forest is to burn the entire thing. Which is, I think, coming from a place of historical, that's how it, you know, from what we read about in old entries and journals, how it used to be. It was an Oakland savanna, oak savanna mm. and upland savanna and, you know, Schoolcraft talks about how you could ride through on your horse yeah. for days straight and not knock your hat off your yeah. head from a limb or something right. like that. So it sounds like they're trying to return it back to that. I think that's the goal, but I don't think it's achievable. I don't think they have the resources to do it. Okay. They don't have the funding to do that. It's a huge undertaking. Um, and and so far, I don't think they've achieved it. Uh, to my knowledge, it's not, they've not successfully achieved that anywhere. So whether or not it's it's doable, I don't know. Whether or not it's doable with the amount of funding or the lack of funding um, that's there, I don't know. But to do it on that on that kind of scale is is just over the top mm. in our in our opinion. Um, and the same with logging. I think there there are ways to log. Uh, single tree selection, for example, is a sustainable way to log that creates diversity. It opens the canopy. It allows the sunlight to in. Um, but you know they're they're stuck on on even age management where they take trees out of the same age um, and that's that doesn't 
that doesn't stimulate diversity when they do that. So we think there's better ways to, to, to log than, than what's being proposed, particularly when it comes to road building mm -hmm. uh, and the methodology that's used to extract those logs. Um, and I would take issue with the, with the claim that fire's a natural phenomenon here. Okay. I, I, I don't know that history bears that out. I think it's a man-made phenomenon. I think, you know, Native Americans burned. Right. Um, but that's a man-made Yeah, fire. that was I, something they were doing to attract wildlife to right. their hunting grounds. I think, you know, I've read the Osage Indians. A lot of the Ozarks was historical hunting grounds mm -hmm. where they would come, and this is where they would, you know, stock up on furs and meat and food for the year, right. and then they would go back to where they were living. Mm -hmm. And to attract wildlife here, like, like you're saying, they would have these prescribed burns, right. which would open up the canopy and do all these things. But I think, you know, it's not like the West where we have, uh, you know... Natural light, wildfires. Yeah, natural wildfires that are lightning strikes. Occasionally we do. I mean, we had one a few years ago over in, in Boxley uh, that they, they, they think was lightning uh, initiated. But, you know, it's so humid here. It's, it's a totally different mm -hmm. ecosystem than the conifer forests out West. So uh, I, don't, I don't know that history bears out that before Native Americans started setting fire that there was a natural fire mm. uh, ecosystem. So you're there. saying there's a case to be made that some of the best writing we get about the Ozark canopy being opened up and schoolcraft and whoever else was a product of really good land management from the Native Americans for their particular use. But even before that, there's a pretty decent possibility that the Ozarks in their most natural state looks something similar to what we have currently. Uh, I don't know that I'd go that far because all of our logs, all of our woods have been logged over, you know, multiple, multiple times. It's denser, so it's uh, even our huge oaks, yeah, or even our stuff. wilderness areas, uh, yeah. you know, are, are not real old growth forests. So we got I mean, the worst of the two. That's what we're <laughs> yeah. looking at right now. Yeah. So, you know, but I have a little, I take issue with the Forest Service's, you know, goal of management that the forests have to be managed. That, I mean, that kind of flies in the face of, our wilderness areas. Mm. If if unmanaged forests are inherently unhealthy, which is kind of what the Forest Service would argue, then that means that our wilderness areas are unhealthy areas. Mm. And I, I don't I don't think that's the case. I don't I don't think we need to turn all of our forest lands into parks. Mm. There needs to be you know wild, uh, impenetrable forests that that don't look like parks. It's, mm -hmm. it's great to to, to be able to ride your horse through the through the woods like a park, but that's that's not a natural mm. woodland, I don't think. Mm. It is interesting, even thinking. You know, I, I think a lot of the times what what I've heard as a goal would be true biodiversity. So you would have impenetrable forests, like you're talking about. You would have some savannas. You would have glades. You would have open prairies, native prairies, and stuff like that. And so you're creating like a mosaic of different habitat options and diversity for wildlife to, you know, accumulate in one area versus the other. And they, they use these pockets of, of land um, in different ways. And so you know, ultimately I think that would be the goal. I don't think you'd want a monotonous um, outcome in any one way or other completely in, in an entire Ozark national forest. Yeah, monoculture. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I don't think that would be the goal. So you, yeah, it's like, then the question is, well, how much of each one do we need? What is right? And I don't even know, you know, who decides that and 
how that should be decided. Yeah, it's a it's a hard one, and I'm not a I'm not a forester. I, you know, I don't pretend to to know the answers to all of that. But I, but I I just think that that our in some ways our forests get overmanaged, and I and I don't think they are able to achieve their goals, their stated goals, and doing it. It's almost like job security. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's I think there's a ways there are ways to accomplish, uh, you know, the goals w- without uh, without going to the extremes that I, in my opinion, the extremes that, that the Forest Service goes to, especially in this particular area mm-hmm. of Roberts Gap. And you and you mentioned too, hope, like your hope for this, the outcome of this would be to let's take a step back, let's assess what this would do, and understand it before we go ahead and do it. Yeah. It's not that we just want it to all out stop and never happen again. Like, let's understand it. Is that kind of what you're getting Correct. at? Correct. Yeah, we're not asking that they halt the project. We're asking that they take another look at it and okay. that they do a deeper environmental assessment. We'd love for them to do an environmental impact study, which is a much more involved uh, than an environmental assessment is. What, is, um, what does that look like? And how is it different? It takes multiple years to conduct, uh, and Forest Service claims that they already did that, that they did it when they when they developed the forest plan for the entire Ozark St. Francis Forest. They had to do an environmental impact study. Um, that was in 2005, I think. Um, so, you know, they claim that, that the, the Roberts Gap area is covered by that environmental impact study they did in 2005, which we don't, we think that this is such a unique area that it requires uh, more more deep study. And if they're not going to do an environmental impact study, then do an, a supplemental environmental assessment is what they need to do. Yeah, and then and then that'll be an opportunity for the public to comment further about the Indiana bat colony uh, and and about other uh, proposals that they might present. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask about that. Has there been any? precedent set in uh, previous cases in the state or even outside of the state that deals with a headwater leading into a national river area that is in in and of itself the area surrounding is national forest that also is including an endangered mammal species <laughs> like that's that, a there's a lot going specific, on specific yeah. yeah like is or even one or two of those things but like is there uh is there anything that that y'all have come across that is similar or comparable in any way, or is this kind of the first of its kind? Yeah, I don't know. I, I can't say that we've investigated that thoroughly. I know that uh, New River Gorge, for example, the lands that make up the uh, the preserve there uh, were private lands. They were timber company lands and mining company lands that had already been logged and mined, and so those companies were willing to 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 sell them to the to the federal government to make into a preserve. Now, I think um, Runway never said specifically but what their plan was for the preserve here, except that they did say public lands only. Uh, that only that would only make uh, the Forest Service lands or the wildlife management or Gene Rush wildlife management area, which is game and fish land, are the only two sections of public lands that adjoin the Buffalo River. So most likely it would be one of those. So You're talking about to be acquired into the... Park and preserve. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So their their propo- I don't want to use the pro- word proposal, but their their idea was uh, that there would be the the Buffalo River National Park would be the existing Buffalo National River, and then the preserve part of it would be adjoining public lands. Oh, I hadn't heard that. So that would have to be either 
Roberts Gap and the other parts mm-hmm. of the Forest Service lands that are joint that are in the watershed or the Gene Rush Management Area, Wildlife Management Area, that's down by Carver. Um, so, um, uh, but I'm not aware of other parks that are that have the same kind of situation that we've got here, where you've got an endangered species and Forest Service lands adjacent to a national park. Um, but um, but it definitely, in our opinion, requires a little deeper investigation as yeah. to mm-hmm. impacts that they're going to have. Yeah. And last question on this, and, and then I think we, we can probably wrap up here. I, I'm just curious, does this set a, the outcome of this lawsuit, does it set a precedent for the way that the U.S. Forest Service manages the the forest as a whole outside of Roberts Gap um, within the state and maybe even outside of the state? Like, does, is this something that would set a precedent to where every time they want to go and do a project, there needs to now be years of Im- environmental impact assessments and studies or well, in your mind, what would, what would the precedent that this would set be? I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really say specifically, but I think this is such a unique situation that I, I don't think it would be precedent setting. And they already are required to do environmental assessments before okay. they begin a big project like this. They're required to take public comments um, so that's already part of the process. Um, so I don't, I don't think that this would be any sort of precedent setting. Uh, unless, I mean, that would be that the judge would have the ultimate call on that, depending on what what kind of hmm. uh, decision he made. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think so though. I mean, it's a fairly small. I mean, it's forty thousand acres, which which is big. Um, but in the scheme of things, that's for the Forest Service. That's a that's a small parcel of land. Yeah, yeah. When you're looking at millions and millions of acres yeah. that they manage, yeah. gotcha. Well, um, Kyle, unless you've got any other, you got any other questions for him? Man, I don't think so. We've covered so much. <laughs> We've good covered stuff. a lot. Yeah. I no, I, I don't think I have any other questions. I just I'm sitting here thinking about how how tied together everything is. And it's one of those things you think about and you know about, but when you get to sit down and have a lengthy conversation about it, you start to realize how everything in conservation, in the outdoors and hunting and fishing and uh, the environment and tourism and the economy of Arkansas in the Ozarks, I mean, all of it, like it is so, it is so tied together. We are, as much as we'd like to think we're not, every single one of us, even your sustainable blueberry farm yeah. being shipped to, to Dallas, right? Uh as much as we like to think we are we are pretty distant from the land and what it provides and what it does because it's you know for a lot of us it's a place we travel to we travel quote unquote to the woods and mm-hmm. we go spend time and we go home and yeah. and all of that we are just so connected to it it yeah. just it affects everything so just thinking over here but I'll let you I'll let you do with this yeah with I've got thought. a I've got a friend who's a uh, ex state legislator and and he likes to say that everything touches everything mm. and he's thinking of it in a political sense but uh, but it's true in a natural sense too mm-hmm. yeah. we're all connected yeah well I'm grateful one that you had us out here and we're willing to sit down and talk with us and let me ask you some questions about stuff going on um, but two I'm I'm grateful for you and people like you who who do think about the broader impacts and what that does for the resource that we ultimately all enjoy and benefit from in some way or another. And and even to the extent of, you know, you think about the Buffalo River in itself, but then to zoom out and realize that that's a small piece of a much bigger pie mm-hmm. and that it all flows together, like you were saying, Kyle, just the fact that some 
people like you and, and other people have the mindset to zoom out and say like, what are we, you know, what are we ultimately doing to this resource around it? And taking that bigger perspective is, it's important. We, I mean, we need people like you to consider it and ask questions and push for environmental assessments. Um, and, you know, every, everyone has a piece in this puzzle. And like we keep coming back to, it's like, we got to talk about this stuff. If, if we're all involved and we're all implicated, you know, let's decide together and, and kind of shake hands once we get to a point where we think we know what's going to happen or the, the impacts and implications of this stuff. So, Well, I appreciate that and, and thanks for coming. Yeah, absolutely. To our listeners, if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure you let us know, share it with a buddy, and leave us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, and we will see you on the next one. This podcast is hosted by Kyle V and Kyle Plunkett and produced by Daniel Matthews. For guest recommendations, episode ideas, and general questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or email us at theozarkpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, we can't forget to thank our good buddy, J.D. Clayton, for providing the amazing music for today's episode. Check out his website to see where he's touring next at jdclaytonofficial.com.